Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Solis. This week, we have a story for you about showgirls in Las Vegas, followed by an interview with a famous nuclear physicist based up in Reno. At the end of the show, we have a short piece on National Guard recruitment from our partners over at KUNR Reno Public Radio. Alrighty, well, I'm here with Savannah Strott. You are a freelance reporter down in Las Vegas, and you've recently written a story for us on showgirls on the Strip, and it was it was really fun. So, Savannah, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Joey, for inviting me. Yeah, yeah. And so to start off, I kind of just wanted to ask, you know, why did you want to write this story and what's it about? Honestly, I wanted to write the story because I, fi- I finally had people start visiting me from college because I graduated a couple years ago, a year ago, and I was finally doing touristy things. And I saw, obviously, the showgirls, they were out working. And I was just, like, fascinated by them because I, I never see them in action. I don't go to the Strip very often, like most locals. And I, w- I just had all these questions about, like, what do they do? How do they make money? How is this a living? Do they like it? Don't they get, you know, harassed? Like, just so many questions. So that's kind of the curiosity that led me to the story. So they always explain, they always explain up front that they do it for a tip. Is pretending to slap her butt, but he's not touching her. Um, he did say Titty City. He was looking to go uh, to like bite her breast or something in the air. Um, and so the story ends up answering a lot of those kind of basic questions, but it really focuses on how these women see themselves as businesswomen. They see themselves as entrepreneurs. They're you know, hustlers, they're working very hard and not everybody thinks that of them. Some people know that they pose for tips and they will pay them, but they probably don't know kind of all the background work that goes into it and all the skills that it takes for somebody to give you a tip, first of all, but also give you kind of crazy high tip. Yesterday, I got my biggest tip ever. Really? What? what, Are you comfortable sharing? Yeah, $540. $540? (laughs) So just for those who, and I'd be shocked if anyone listening to this podcast doesn't know what a showgirl is, but you know, maybe we actually do have some listeners outside of Nevada. So just for those listeners, what is a showgirl? So a showgirl is something, it's originally from Paris, actually, like way back in the 1800s. And they were women (laughs) dressed very nicely. In the 1950s, Vegas brought that kind of idea in the showgirl to the strip. And they were supposed to kind of bring elegance and sophistication. And these women were tall and beautiful and draped in like thousands and thousands of dollars of crystals. And traditionally, they were dancers that performed on these stages for customers. And then when they were done dancing, they were out on the casino floor, kind of keeping people interested away from their money, (laughs) kind of throwing it away, continuing to gamble. And so that's where it is in Vegas. But those traditional showgirls aren't so much kind of alive and acting anymore in that way. The last show fit that kind of traditional role that was solely dedicated to showgirls was Jubilee, and it ended in 2016. And so what are they doing now? Like what's kind of the the modern interpretation of a showgirl? Yeah, so the modern showgirl, or at least the one that we see the most often, are women on the street and specifically the strip in Fremont. And they are dressed like showgirls. They don't have to meet the height requirement. You had to be like 5'8 back then. But now no height requirement. Um, You (laughs) have to be good at this job. Basically getting tourists mostly to pose for photos with you and then pay you for a tip. So 
a lot of other places will have Elmo's or like Batman superheroes. And we have that in Vegas too, but the showgirls are a Vegas icon. So it's kind of a specialty that you find here. And I do cosplay. I'm Harley Quinn on the strip too. Oh, wow. So this is, so you like, what's like the right term? Like I'm like impersonators, street performers. Yeah, I mean showgirls. And then when I'm Harley Quinn, you just call each other like street performers, I uh-huh. guess. <laughs> So you're doing this like full time? This is your yeah, eight hours a day. Eight hours a day. Seven days this week. <laughs> Seven days? How often do you get um, like a day off? Whatever I want. I mean, like Monday and Tuesday, I'm going to Disneyland. Oh, that's fun. I get my wisdom teeth taken out soon, so I'm working a lot because I know I have to take days off for that. Yeah. And I travel a lot. So like, yeah. So you just like pick your own schedule then. And you followed around one specific company, right? Who, who were you following when you were doing this story? Yeah, I was following Picture Perfect Showgirls. And they are run by a woman named Michelle Elhai. And she describes herself, but also her company as like a high earning company. And basically, sometimes it's hard because it is a, a job that's kind of hit or miss sometimes on how much you get paid. But she sees herself and, you know, her company is high earners making more than you know, the average street performer or other, like even more than the average specifically showgirls. And so she herself makes a thousand dollars on average for a four hour shift, which is a lot for most people. But even on the strip, that's as a street performer from the context I got and talking to people, that's still a lot. So what she does is she's kind of changing the industry or she's doing different tactics within the industry where she's following on quality of showgirls instead of quantity. A lot of the showgirls said the other companies are more focused in getting, you know, the most showgirls out there. They have a high turnover rate because it is a hard job. But she is really focused on getting the best, recruiting, and being very selective in the people that she brings to the company with her. It does come down to skill and problem solving and analysis. And so she teaches all of the girls who work with her at her company. I love it. Good. I love it because I have no shame about what I do. Yeah. Um, I'm really proud of what I do and I know where it's gotten me in life. And Mm -hmm. I'm also, like a lot of girls, like are nervous about being transparent. Uh-huh. When they get photos. Uh-huh. Like, but like, we're gonna hustle the shit out of you. We're getting a photo, you're gonna have a good time, and you're gonna give us a lot of money. Like, mm-hmm. I don't care. I'll be upfront about it. Like, it's just a tip. I'm going to hustle you, but it's just a tip. It's up to you. Like, I tell mm-hmm. people that. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. Like, I'm not hiding anything. So Yeah. <laughs> so you talked to a bunch of these showgirls and including Michelle, right? Yes. I shadowed them for a day on Veterans Day. It was interesting. <laughs> a lot of people there, so. We started the day 8.30 a.m. at her house and just a bunch of, I think it ended up being maybe between 10 and 15 girls kind of in and out of the house, getting ready, doing their makeup, getting their costumes. Oh, no. I'm so used to the strip, but a lot of the girls like free mom, and I'm like, really? And it's like, I don't know, I feel cramped there a little bit. Maybe because I'm not used to it. Maybe. Yeah. What's the like, be- like for you personally? What's the benefit like strip versus free mom? Like on the strip, like there's more people and there's more space on the. Strip. And then they split off in pairs and they go off and do their shifts. So I followed Michelle and then her partner Jamie Poole, who's also a showgirl who's been doing it for five years. So that was a pretty long time compared to some of the other girls who had only been doing it for a couple months or a year. And so I went and I followed them on their shift. That was about four hours, four and a half hours. 
going up and down Fremont and doing a lot of walking and talking to a lot of other showgirls because there are some who don't work with a company and they're called independent showgirls. And so getting their perspective as well. But it was a it was a long day. I personally was very tired after that. So I see how it's very how it's difficult. I wasn't even working trying to get people to pay me. <laughs> so part of the job is the costume, right? And and they have tons of different types of costumes, but they're all very they're scantily clad usually and, and they're very big and showy. Yes. And part of that is because the bigger your feathers are, the more easy you are to spot, especially in somewhere like the strip where People kind of have a destination, so they're walking pretty fast and they're maybe not trying to talk to you, but they can't avoid you if you have these like huge feathers that kind of make you stick out. Like the actual quality costumes makes uh-huh. such a big difference, at least for me yeah. personally, like why I chose to stop doing independent. Yeah. Like even the difference in tips? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like people, like the difference in like the amount of photos that we got, like so much less than this, and the amount of tips because people want a tip for like quality. Like so, you were saying that Michelle generally makes about a thousand dollars on a four-hour shift, but is that like is that typical? You know, what what does the average photo come in? You know, what do they expect to get tipped? It's really difficult to give an average like per photo, especially Mm -hmm. because a lot of their shifts end up being like the extreme generosity of one or two, you know, less frequent high tippers. So like on the day I went and I chatted with them, they got a $200 tip at one point. They got $170. I think they got 100 But then they also had a $70 tip, a $40 tip, a $20 tip. They had somebody give them $8. They had somebody give them no money at all. So it's harder to do it on like a per photo basis. But Michelle personally, she kind of finds anything under $20 when she says like a generous tip. Anything under $20 is a little offensive because they do have to split. So the tip is split between the two girls, about $10 per photo. So that's, I think for her, that's the minimum. But I think it really just depends showgirl to showgirl. Some people think that we're genuinely paid by by like, like a casino, casino or something to just like walk around and be like a tourist attraction and, and some people think that we're prostitutes too mm. which is very interesting because that's a big target on our back to be like you guys want to sleep with us like we would get arrested real quick if that was what we were doing so yeah they don't understand we're just out there to just literally take pictures with them and it's for tips and stuff and then that's it and you know, obviously, being out in public, you face the public. And, and I think women in particular are generally victims of, of sexual harassment or, or, or the ire of, of, of drunken people walking down the strip. What do they face on a day-to-day basis when they're, when they're out working? Well, on a day-to-day basis, they definitely get comments of all kinds. But for the girls who've been working there for a while, there's only a certain category of comments that now kind of phase them. I think they said at least once a shift, the day I was shadowing with them, Michelle told me she heard four to five times somebody said, get a real job, which to the showgirls is extremely annoying because they see their work obviously as a real job and they think like they work very hard at it. It takes a lot of skill. It takes a lot of experience. And that's not always recognized. But unfortunately, there are definitely some comments that are more targeted and do follow into, fall into the category of being sexually harassed or even being touched without their consent. They get slut or don't look at her, like, stay away. For them, it does come down to you are a woman. You are unfortunately at risk to be sexually harassed in kind of any environment and then any job. 
you can be sexually harassed. But a lot of the way that the girls look at it is at this job, they're their own bosses. And so they do get to choose how they respond. If they walk away or if they, you know, want to say something back or if they want to tell security, which doesn't always help them. I worked at a law office when I was 18 and I had men come in and like make me feel like uncomfortable because they're being like weirdly like sexual harassment vibes, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And I was wearing like business casual clothes. And like, I'm sure if you ask any of these women here, no matter what they're wearing, there's been some form of like sexual harassment in our lives. So it is amplified when we're literally out there with a huge target on our back, just being like, look at us, look at these rainbows, look at these feathers. Like they're gonna look, people are gonna look. But we get to control that narrative. Like if someone touches us, we don't have to be like, hey, like, thank you. Like we can be like, don't touch me. Mm. Like we have pepper spray, we have tasers. So it's kind of just they get the control and, you know, with the consent to like they get to they get to say where the limit is. All right, Savannah. Well, thank you so much for reporting on this story. If you want to read it, you can find it on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. And I'm sure we will see more freelance pieces from you in the future. So, Savannah, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks again, Joey. You know, Joey, despite growing up in Las Vegas, I don't have any stories about showgirls. <laughs> really, no Jacob. personal anecdotes here. No, they're they're everywhere when you're when you're in downtown. But I guess if you grew up in Vegas, you don't go downtown or to the strip very often, right? Well, as a small child, no, I did not. No. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, Jacob, um, other than showgirls, we do have another very Nevada story, one that is pretty far away from Fremont Street in the strip, though. We head up here to Reno to talk about nuclear physics. And I can hear you turning the podcast off, but you shouldn't, because I promise this isn't going to be dense. No, it's not going to be dense. Uh, I got the opportunity to chat with Taylor Wilson, who at the age of 14 built a nuclear reactor in his parents' garage and is someone who I would consider a genuine genius. Now, these days, Taylor is doing research up at UNR, and he's also running his own company, which is looking to make modular nuclear reactors. You can also see him hosting Vice News episodes about science, and he's a regular at TED Talks. Taylor has also consulted on popular sci-fi movies and has worked with the Department of Defense to help defend against nuclear threats. He took a break from his busy workload to join us and talk about living in Reno, the past, present, and future of Nevada's role in nuclear energy, and a whole lot more. We've got a slice of Joey's interview here for the podcast, but if you want to listen to the whole thing in the full 40 minutes, you can subscribe to our newsletter, Soundcheck, which will have a link to the full interview in the December edition. So without further ado, here is my interview with Taylor Wilson. I'm assuming most people don't know who you are, or if they do, they've heard you in the news probably five, ten years ago, right? You were the kid that built a nuclear, I might get this wrong, nuclear reactor in your garage? Yeah, nuclear fusion reactor. You live here in Reno. Let's just start with kind of your story. How did you end up here here in Reno? You're a, you're a nuclear physicist. You are about a year older than me, 28. How did you get started in this? Yeah, it's a great question. I tell everybody, you know, everybody needs a hobby, and I just found what I loved when I was really young. So I think that's probably what sets me apart is when I was 10 years old, I discovered nuclear science, and I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. I spent my whole life growing up being kind of curious about the way the world works and being interested in science. And I went through phases where, you know, I was building rockets and wanted to be an astronaut. But when I was 10 years old, I found nuclear science. And I was like, this is pretty interesting. I've got a knack for it. I'm kind of good at it. And I enjoy it. And I think it's something potentially that I can make a difference with. 
most 10 year olds that I know mm-hmm. are not saying, hey, I want to get into nuclear science. I want to watch Pokemon or play GameCube or something. <laughs> what was that? Or did you also have those normal 10 year old boy interests? I'm sure I had like normal interests, but I was always, I mean, even when I was like super young, like two or three years old, I was just always super curious about, you know, the way the world worked. And I think that's kind of what sets you up for being a natural scientist. So what brought you here to Reno, Nevada? You're not from Nevada originally. Yeah. So I grew up in Arkansas and the schools there were okay. But when when I was in middle school, I think we started thinking about what, what are some opportunities outside of what we had available there for me to kind of expand my horizons. And funny enough, I think actually my sister was on a plane flying somewhere and she had a Time magazine. And inside the Time magazine, there was a story about the school in Reno, Nevada called the Davidson Academy. It was a very random thing that she stumbled upon. And I think she sent it to my parents. We're like, hey, you know, this is kind of interesting. And so one thing led to another and came out for a visit. And uh, the really neat thing about the school is it's on the campus of the University of Nevada, and it's a school for the profoundly gifted, for gifted and talented. But it really is one, if not the only school like it in the country, and that it's a, it's a free public high school. But it's set up so that if you're If you qualify, right, if you test into it on SAT or IQ scores or whatever, you can attend the school. And if you're really, really good at, say, science, but not so good at English, you can still take those English courses like regular middle or high school courses. But because it's on the university campus, you have access to the wide breadth of anything you're interested in. I think the way we teach people science or humanities it's too siloed. You know, that's kind of my personal philosophy on it. I think the more that people in the humanities understand science, the better off they will be. And more people are in science, understand the greater societal context of the work they're doing, the better off they'll be. Nevada has a history with nuclear testing. Do you think that the state kind of foster your your curiosity? Yeah, you know, I will say that one of the things about moving to Nevada that I was so excited about was its kind of legacy and involvement with nuclear technology, you know, the Nevada test site and all of these things. And partly, I think that's one of the reasons that I have stayed here. I, I love this state for a lot of reasons. I love it for the, the kind of natural environment, for the history of the state. And there's a lot of interesting things that happen in Nevada that your average Nevadan just doesn't really know about. One of the fascinating things about Nevada is there are less people born here that live here than any other state in the country. And I think that reflects something that goes back to kind of the the early pioneer history of Nevada is people came here in search of of new things, whether it was making their riches in the gold and silver mines of Virginia City or the burgeoning Las Vegas Strip. People ask me all the time, "Why, why do you live in Reno? Why do you live in Nevada? You could live in New York City or London. For me, there's so many enticing things about living in Reno and Nevada that that are the reason I'm still here. I fell in love with the natural environment. I fell in love with the mountains and the desert. That fuels a lot of kind of my research, going out and being able to study the geology of Nevada, study the, the microbes that live in the soil of the desert, and study these incredible minerals that Nevada has incredible diversity of minerals, more than probably any other state in the union. So those things, the natural environment, attracted me. But for me, it really started to feel like home. I do a lot of traveling. Before the pandemic, I spent probably two or three weeks out of every month on the road traveling all over the world. And Nevada and Reno was a great place to come back to. How how do you feel about the future of energy? And is there a role that Nevada can play in, in, in that future? 
Oh yeah, no, I, I, it's fascinating. And I, I like to tell people, I think there's no state better suited for the transition that's happening right now than the state of Nevada. We are undergoing really the most important technological revolution, probably since the industrial revolution, the invention of the steam engine right now. A lot of that is around electrification. So a lot of the things that in the 20th century we used fossil fuels for, we're now able to do with electricity. And this is everything from electric vehicles, cars, buses, aircraft, to electrifying homes uh, and electrifying industrial processes. We want to uh, reduce and eventually eliminate our dependence on fossil fuels because of carbon emissions. So where does Nevada fit into all of that? Well, first of all, we have incredible natural resources in the state. I think most Nevadans are probably unaware of all the things, all of the wonderful things that lie beneath our feet. And obviously we're the silver state. And so silver is one of those historically that we've had. And there's a lot of silver used in the kind of energy technologies of the future. But then you just go down the list, everything from obviously lithium to copper, rare earth elements. There are amazing resources in the state. And being able to transition to a new energy economy requires accessing these resources. And, and my hope is that we can do it in a very sustainable way that really is a lot different than the way we did in the 20th century. Instead of kind of digging up big pits in the ground and, and kind of disregarding the externalities of the way that we produce these materials, that we can do things like in-situ leaching and, and brine production and things that have relatively low environmental footprints. I think Nevada's set up really well to do that. So I think when people hear about nuclear energy, I think that there is some concern, right? Like Three Mile Island, Fukushima. Do you, do you share any of those concerns or, or, or do you have any for the future of nuclear technology? What are your biggest concerns when it comes to the, the future of this kind of technology? Absolutely. When I was about, I guess, 17 years old, that's when Fukushima happened. And I've now gone there. I've been able to go inside the reactor building, one of the few people that have, have been able to do that. And that was very interesting to see this up close. But I remember when it was happening, going out on the roof and collecting air samples and seeing the fallout come over from, from the Fukushima accident. It really kind of, I think, reinforced the power of the technology. I think I, I definitely recognize that it had this vast potential, right, to produce carbon-free electricity at incredible scale. It was incredibly energy-dense technology. But nuclear power today has downsides. And I'll, I'll just kind of touch on three. One is the risk of accidents. And that's something we saw at Fukushima. Now, the risk of accident on any given day at a nuclear power plant is relatively low. But the technology itself has some intrinsic drawbacks. And so you can make nuclear power, and we have made nuclear power incredibly safe in this country. But that also means that it's very expensive. So that leads into the second point. If it's too expensive to build and scale, then it has a minimal impact on the transition that's happening. And so that's something I've spent a lot of time working on, is how do you make a nuclear reactor that is intrinsically inherently safe? Nuclear power is incredibly exciting, and it's just it never really was perfected. And there are a lot of reasons for that, and we don't have time to get into the entire history of it. But I think, I think we finally possess the the tools and the technologies to make nuclear reactors in a, in a safe way and being able to mass produce them. What I'm working on is nuclear reactors that are kind of like aircraft. You have a standardized design, a standardized licensing process, and you build a bunch of them in a factory. And that's much different than the way that we built nuclear power reactors in the 20th century, 
where each one was kind of an individual design and build and license. And you went out in a field somewhere and you assembled millions of parts. But if you do it in a factory, you have a standardized design. You can do it much more cost effectively and much safer. And that's kind of what my vision for it is. You are probably one of the youngest science communicators out there right now. A lot of your time is taken up doing TV documentaries or, 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 or you know, talking to journalists like me. How important is science communication to getting more people on board with things like the things you're working on? Yeah, I mean, I, I just think in general, science literacy in the public will do wonders for society. I think if you, if you think about the issues we face, issues in energy and the environment and medicine, the more informed your average citizen, your average voter, your average consumer is about the way the world works, the better. And so I realized kind of early on that I had a opportunity and probably a responsibility to help people understand science and technology. And I, I really enjoy it going out there and, and being able to do stories on technology that may be completely unrelated to what I do in my day to day, but that can help people understand how the world works is a great thing because the more young people we inspire to pursue science and technology and understand science and technology, the better off we're going to be. I mean, those are going to be the people that go on to develop cures for diseases, new types of transportation technology, new ways to help reduce the specter of, of climate change. Young people are going to be the key to that. How would a 14-year-old or a 10-year-old today find what you found? Is there a way that we can encourage that or that you found that is a good way to, to foster those curiosities at a young age? When I got into nuclear science, I had this incredibly vast network of information called the internet available. And not only the incredible stores of information on, on the internet, but the ability to be an email or a phone call away from great scientists at national labs and universities and things like that. And so for all the downsides that our internet age have caused, social media and, and whatnot, one of the, the real benefits is that we have access to the whole world at our fingertips. And so if you're young, if you're another 10-year-old that's interested in science, kind of the world is your oyster if you're willing to have the curiosity and go explore and educate yourself on these topics and, you know, reach out to experts. I was never shy about that. I was never shy to contact someone and say, hey, I need to know this piece of information. And so I think being able to encourage young people, and that's something I, I always want to do throughout my career is be able to be a mentor and pass on a little bit of, of what was passed on to me to a new generation. All right, Taylor. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, of course. It's great to be with you. You know, I don't do a whole lot of interviews these days, but I, I love the state. I've kind of fell in love with it as my, as my adopted home and outlets like the Nevada Independent, which I think are incredibly important. Having the ability to report on state issues, that, that's an incredibly important thing for having an educated populace. And so I'm happy to be here and get to chat. And now we jump to a story from our friends over at KUNR and the Mountain West News Bureau. That's right. Kayla Bradle, a reporter with the Mountain West News Bureau and KUNR, has a short piece on Army National Guard recruits. And if you want to hear more of Caleb's reporting, you can find that by visiting KUNR.org. New data shows there's a nationwide shortage of people enlisting in the Army National Guard. While most of our region is struggling to recruit, one state is bucking the national trend. The Mountain West News Bureau's Caleb Radel reports. 
The Nevada Army National Guard met 95% of its recruitment goals this fiscal year. That ranked second in the nation, trailing only New York. Captain Emerson Marcus is the Nevada National Guard spokesperson. He says the state's booming population is just one of several reasons for the recruitment success, which was 312 new soldiers in the last year. Members of our leadership have really put an incentive on diversity, equity, and inclusion in the force. We have created a workplace that's inclusive and it's attractive for members of our state. Meanwhile, Wyoming, Colorado, Idaho, New Mexico met between roughly 50 and 55 percent of their recruitment goals. Nationally, the Army Guard says it fell short of its recruiting goal by about 12,000 soldiers. And next year, it could lose 9,000 troops refusing to get the required COVID-19 vaccine. For the Mount West News Bureau, I'm Caleb Bradle. Well, that's our show for you this week. Thank you for listening. This show is produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Jackie Valley, Michelle Rendells, and of course, my lovely co-host, Jacob Solis. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us at podcast at Our theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks, June Pearson, and Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters, and we'll talk to you next week. can listen in the December <laughs> which will have a link <laughs> <laughs> like a f- jet taking off over there Jacob <laughs> I'm dying man all right